This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Hi, North American listeners. It's your host, Liz Beattie. A quick note about our show today. In these very strange times, there are travel bans and other advisories in several regions across Canada, both for domestic and international travelers. Please get the latest updates at travel.gc.ca, as well as from local tourism offices. But even if travel is still but a dream... We hope this story will help keep these people in your hearts until we can all explore freely this glorious planet again. Enjoy the show. Some of my dearest memories of my late father connect to football, specifically the Canadian Football League, the CFL, and the Toronto Argonauts. It's 1971, a warm, late September evening. Dad has season's tickets, and before each home game, we hit the double blue club under Toronto's old CNE Stadium. It's a big room full of big men, loud, scotch-drinking men, laughing, clanking tumblers and cutlery. The room is blue with smoke. A grizzled, stout waiter with graying white shirt delivers a slab of prime rib the size of my nine-year-old Fez. It's the heyday of the CFL. A capacity 33,000 fans are flowing through the turnstiles as we dig in. Soon we follow. Our seats are nosebleeders on the less posh, uncovered side of the stadium. At kickoff, flasks circulate everywhere, including between my dad and his buddy Bill. They've known each other since playing high school football together. They debate this starting lineup amid a sea of boatman banners, double blue painted faces, and transistor radios for play-by-play, probably because we're so far away from the field. Then a flag on the play. Hey, ref! A scrawny young man in a Toronto jersey stands up. Don't pick your nose or your forehead will cave in. The crowd for 20 rows around roars, me included. My nine-year-old self is loving this. These raucous, unfancy fans, it's homey and unvarnished. Sure, there are some star American players on the field. Future Super Bowl-winning Washington quarterback Joe Theismann is in his rookie year among them. But many more aren't that far off the guys my dad might have played football with in high school. Most have second jobs. Now, you might assume from all this that the CFL is some quaint spin-off of the more polished, more glitzy, more professional American game. 
but not so much. In fact, some would argue American gridiron came from the Canadian game. But regardless of who came first, there is a unique everyman appeal to the great Canadian game (laughs) with roots older than Confederation. My dad loved it. I love it. And today, it's an American, I know, strangely, who seems to best explain this magic. I'm Liz Beattie. This is North Americana. We love surprising stories that connect Americans and Canadians. Today, one of our favorite contributors, Robert Reed, shares his take on the long and remarkably entwined history of Canadian and American football. His crazy storytelling chops shine through here for platforms like Lonely Planet, Nat Geo, and PBS. As an American, he explains his odd and enduring love for the CFL and the different things our two countries take away from tossing the pigskin. Here's Robert. I like football. I watch it, talk about it, think about it. I watch football out of habit. It's like my reality TV. Football is where I first learned of glory and heroes. It's how I bonded with my dad. And now, almost two decades after he's passed away, it still feels like a place where I can kind of communicate with him. I watch football too because I hope to find poetry in life. And what's more poetic than a last second field goal or making a diving tackle at the one yard line or even missing that tackle. It's like that 90-yard scoop-and-score fumble return to end the 1954 Grey Cup. I still wonder if that was an incomplete pass. Now, this is an odd conversation for someone like me to have, talking about Canadian football on a podcast, because, well, I'm American. Yet, somehow, in the early 1990s, living in New York, poised for professional greatness, I accidentally became infatuated with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And everything in my life that followed is different as a result. Welcome to my American love letter to the game of Canadian football. And just so you know, this might get a little weird. Let me start by making a disclosure. Like most Americans, I grew up completely unaware that Canada even really had football. I mean, there must have been some vague knowledge there that Warren Moon and Doug Flutie somehow got their pro starts north of the border before making it big in the NFL. But that kind of felt like judging George Clooney's acting career on his TV shows, Facts of Life or ER. She says to me, she says, I didn't know that pediatricians could be so sexy. What we did eventually know about the CFL in the U.S., at least for any football fan of a certain age, came from the same place. Because I've got nothing here. You're giving me baseball and hockey, and I've got my keister blowing in the wind. I mean, I'm made to look like a fool here. It's sports. All around the clock, sports all the time. That's the concept of the news. Oh, that's never going to work. 
That's ridiculous. I mean, that's like that's like a 24-hour cooking network or an all-music channel. ESPN. That's Will Ferrell playing Ron Burgundy on a fake audition for ESPN circa 1979. ESPN is pretty well known for covering football these days, but its first ever broadcast of live football wasn't the NFL or American college football. It was the CFL. The 1980 season starter between the Toronto Argonauts and the Montreal Alouettes. Toronto won that one, 18 to 11, which even the score now alone is fascinating to me. American football teams almost never end up with either 18 or 11 points. It's true, it's a really weird score for us. And ESPN would go on to play many CFL games in its early days of programming. Most Americans who watched quickly pounced on all the differences and they positively glared from the first kick of the Canadian ball. The field was wider, longer. Field goal posts were on the goal line. There's 12 players, not 11. Three downs, not four. Orange penalty flags, not yellow penalty flags. Motion in the backfield. Defense lining up one yard off the scrimmage line. The three minute warning, not two. 25 second play clock, not 40 as in the NFL. Even fans got involved. Seasons ticket, not season tickets. There were no fair catches. And then there was that irresistible single point rouge that enabled final scores like Hamilton's championship win in 1967, 24 to one. Not to mention the salary differences. Honestly, at the time, I reckon all these CFL rules were purposely made different just so they weren't American. Just tweaks to Canadianize the sport. I didn't realize, and very few Americans even realize today, that the Canadian game has been around as long as the American game, if not longer. And wait a second, that brings up the first big question. I mean, who invented football? The question goes way back. I am looking at a wonderful photograph taken in May of 1874. I encourage you to find this photograph online, print out a copy, frame it, look at it often. It's a grainy image from Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Harvard University campus. At the near side of an empty wide field, standing left to right, are two football teams. The teams from Harvard University and McGill University from Montreal. The uniforms are really basic. There's no hats, no helmets, and the players are pretty gangly. I mean, way undersized by modern football standards. And around them is a blurry suggestion of a curious crowd, some wearing bowler hats. No one wears deodorant. Sorry, but I always think of that when I look at old photos. And everyone seems fidgety. They're waiting for this slow camera shutter to finally document a moment that is to the game of football what Obi-Wan Kenobi handing over that lightsaber to Luke Skywalker is to the movie of Star Wars. You've just taken your first step into a larger world, Obi-Wan tells Luke. Thank you, Obi-Wan. This photo marks entering the larger world that is the birth of modern football. Harvard and McGill played two games that day. The first with Harvard rules and Harvard's soccer style round ball and Harvard handedly won it three zip. But it was the second match that was the game changer. 
Using Canadian rules, a McGill player began play. By doing the unthinkable, he reached down, picked up this strange oblong-shaped ball, and he ran with it? <gasps> the crowd must have gasped. Harvard players were shocked, too, but they quickly found themselves loving the adaptation, and somehow they held on that day to a thriller 0-0 tie. And they've been running with the ball ever since. So I ask you, who invented football? Canada or the U.S.? Harvard or McGill? The game wasn't built in a day, though. Not even that day. Over the decades, the game of football evolved as both countries tweaked the rules, sometimes independently, sometimes borrowing rules from the other side of the border. Canada added the forward pass in 1929, but it was the USA that made more modifications more often, adding the fourth down, moving the field goal post to the back of the end zone, and scrapping all that fun backfield motion stuff. So, looking at football today, you could say the CFL actually plays more true to the early football than the NFL does. So there's that little football valentine for you, Canada. But you can't really argue that football is a Canadian invention, nor can you call it an American invention. It's one of these all-too-rare collaborations between neighboring nations. Football is an American-Canadian sport. Or maybe you should say Canadian-American one. Let's talk a little bit about that corridor of time marked by the years 1991 to 1994. This happened to be the great moment of Canadian football awareness in the USA, a period unmatched in its aching opportunity for the CFL, and sadly, not one likely to ever be matched again. There were two notable things that happened. First, in 1991, Rocket Ishmael was expected to be the top pick in the NFL draft, but he went to Canada to play with John Candy and Wayne Gretzky's Toronto Argonauts. That was a stunner. And the second thing was the brief expansion of the CFL into the USA, particularly successful in Baltimore. Fans there were still burning with rage that their NFL Colts had packed for Indianapolis in the middle of a night a few years before. So, at these new CFL games, held on the same pitch that Johnny Unitas had brought championships home to Baltimore, these new CFL converts were waving anti-NFL signs and Canadian flags at games in support of this three-down version of Gridiron. Now, you know that Baltimore is actually home to the original Star-Spangled Banner that inspired the national anthem of the U.S.? I mean, this CFL display there, for some NFL purists, smacked of Canada burning down the football White House. Now, shortly before that was happening, I somehow entered the CFL world myself. I had graduated from college in Oklahoma and moved to New York City. I had found a neat apartment downtown, a job with a fancy magazine, and I had a role in an indie rock band. This was the American dream coming true. And then one night, 1993, Matt Jackson, the band's vocalist and a friend I had met on a study abroad program a few years before, he was over and we were talking about the band and suddenly the conversation turned to this faint recollection that one of us had. Didn't the Canadian Football League have two teams named Rough Riders? I mean, that seemed entirely too good for us. 
and we needed to know if it were true, immediately. Recently, Matt explained our strategy on that fateful day in 1993. Um, we found out the names by calling Air Canada. Yeah. Uh, because there was no Google or anything like that. So you, you called up Air Canada and you said, is it true that there are two Canadian Football League teams named Rough Riders? And the person, the woman who answered the phone, immediately knew that that was true. And then she, I think, spontaneously started naming off the other teams. Names like Argonauts, Blue Bombers, Alouettes, Esks, Stampeders, Tiger Cats, and of course, Rough Riders and Rough Riders. These are fantastic football names. I mean, this means that seven of the eight CFL teams at the time are ones that have never been used by any American pro franchise or any of the 120 Division I college programs ever. That's 214 teams, not including hockey or soccer pro teams. This Canada is simply amazing nomenclature. Here's Matt again. So, so it was just from the very beginning, there, there, was, there was something very strange about Canadian football. In 1993, very strange was very good for us. And all of these years later, I still wonder how Canada got so many of its names so right. So I called up Graham Neal, a Canadian, a friend and former colleague I had worked with in the Bay Area in the early part of this century. He's a BC Lion fan, now living in Winnipeg. There has to be an apocalyptic event or a pandemic to keep me from going to the Grey Cup. Grey Cup, of course, is Canada's Super Bowl, but better. Um, the Grey Cup, I would call, I always refer to it as Canada's best party. And it doesn't matter. You don't even have to be a football fan. I mean, it certainly helps. Graham goes even when his BC Lions aren't playing. Say, you know what? I just have an unspoken rule with any employer that I have that I get Grey Cup weekend off. No matter where I am in the world, I get to go to the Grey Cup. Next, I ask Graham, the Canadian, why the CFL has superior team names. Uh, you know, we could, I don't, we could get into a debate on just having uh, a more creative mindset and smarter people, but... He's joking here. Well, kinda. So I asked him to help newcomers pick their CFL team by comparing each of them to something that all Americans would know. Bear with us a minute on this. BC Lions. The British Columbia Lions. Ryan Reynolds. Look it up. Edmonton Asks. The Edmonton Eskimos, you know, you just said it, the San Francisco 49ers. Sask Rough Riders. Uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders, Minnesota Vikings. Sometimes good, sometimes not good enough. Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, I would uh, equate to the Cleveland Browns, but not as lovable losers, just as a team that should be better than it is, but nobody really likes to laugh at them. There's a genuine sort of sorrow for Blue Bomber. I mean, they're the current champions, so good for them, but up until then, it, would, it had been a long time coming. Toronto Argonauts. Ugh. The New York Giants, actually. I think they're better than they are. Montreal Alouettes. <sighs> you know, it's tough. I think the Montreal Alouettes are represented well by Tom Hanks, just generally likable and very few flaws. Calgary Stampeders. Stamps uh, are the equivalent to me of the Seattle Seahawks. Often 
blind fan base who expects to win and when they don't doesn't really notice they still think it's a win ottawa red blacks yeah they finally changed their name from rough riders i mean can nothing gold stay ottawa red blacks i would i would equate with um like pittsburgh pirates for some reason just a, a, a nice little stadium downtown with a strong fan base and people who just genuinely enjoy the experience no matter what the outcome is and one more hamilton Ticats. And the Hamilton Tiger Cats, the oldest football team that has been in <laughs> continuous operation in the world, I believe. Okay, let's go back to my New York apartment in 1993. After our Air Canada call ended, Matt and I knew that we badly needed a CFL team to adopt. History and geography won our hearts. We seized on the Tiger Cats. For its history, the team began in the 1860s, I mean, before any NFL team. And the fact that Hamilton was the most proximus Canadian team to New York City. So we went several times. By train, car, and plane, we went to Canada. We attended CFL games. We got adopted by the Cat's Claws fan club. Lifelong fans were soon mailing us stuffed packets of photocop tight cat articles. We got mentioned over the Hamilton's Iverwin Stadium intercom during rallies. We taped up save the tight cat signs ourselves to rally for season's ticket sales when the club was suddenly financially in trouble. And we got to meet tight cat legends that we had never heard of before, like Rufus Baby Crawford, Garney Henley, and the late great Bernie Filoni signed a CFL Hall of Fame postcard to me. Keep coming to Hamilton, he said. Bernie freaking Filoni. Now, we drove to see games in Baltimore, where we impersonated Manitobans, fans pelting us with ice as we held up signs that said, peg em, in the rain. We flew to Ottawa, too. We confused airport mounties there by the sheer amount of Ticat merchandise that we had on ourselves. Oh, those are the happy times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. But yeah. it's funny. I mean, it's because, well, the thing about it is my favorite experience, in a way, is going to Ottawa. Because I remember it was the most vigorous customs in the world we've been through. And the guy was stern, said, this is international travel. I'm not sure why. I don't think we said anything, but he was thinking that we were going to have some problem. He reached into your bag. He pulled out an autographed copy of Garney Henley's autobiography, right? And then he reached past it and pulled out a second copy of Garney (laughs) Henley's autobiography. I don't know why you had both copies in the bag. And then he just let us go through. Games in Montreal, Regina, Vancouver would follow in seasons to come. But all of this wasn't just for the football. When we got back home, we made songs about it for our band, TWN87. I would pretend and I'm true If I said I'd like people know me Because I think Because I think it's only human nature Songs using Canadian football imagery and purloined words from books belted straight out to confused football-phobic crowds at East Village dive bars in New York. Somehow, this band was never signed to a record label. And, you know, like the song that the show was named for is basically a quote taken directly out of Garney Henley, a name that no one in the United States knows. Yeah, nobody's ever Garney Henley's autobiography. He's, yeah. I, I saw that he's the sixth best CFL player of all time. 
And here's what Garney Henley wrote on page 125 of his book, A Gentleman and a Tiger. Major, <laughs> iconic Canadian football player. <laughs> and in it, he has a quote. I would be telling an untruth if I said I didn't like people knowing me because I think it's only human nature to want to be known. And <laughs> we just literally took that quote and made it into lyrics. Then we did the same by pulling quotes from the book by Ticat running back legend Rufus Baby Crawford. I had a dream and I defeated the odds. Another song tributed an Ottawa Rough Rider with a record that mathematically can never be broken in the USA. Gene Gaines' 128-yard punt return for a touchdown in 1964. Now, the fact that... The fact that those lyrics, I, I might say, rather adroitly combine the imagery of the title Vore plus Gene Gay running yeah. down the field. Um, I believe that's probably unique. So yes, we started all this as sort of a joke, but here's the point. We soon found ourselves in far more genuine territory. We were learning about Canada, reading books about Canadian history, and meeting people that we'd never forget. And we started to wonder at that time, why, why were we doing all these weird things? And this is where the changed life story begins. Travel's fun, travel's good. From Dartmouth, England to Hollywood. When I get to a place, I like to look around. First get lost, see what's found. Stop in the markets and see what they're selling. Weave through the aisles like a modern day Magellan. Let's say Columbus I started a 25-year career in travel shortly after my last game in Hamilton. And basically, most of the travel articles and videos to come were trying to recreate lessons that I learned when I happened to meet the Bernie Filonis of the world. And it's there I learned that if you seek passionate people in the world, they'll make you care about anything. And that if you make your trip a quest where you don't just see something, but you go there to make something, it gives you a bigger understanding of a place and how it really lives. I learned that from Canadian football. Later, I'd try out for Mounties for a video. I'd ask Saskatoon locals to describe their city, which I turned into a weird rap song. It's fun and fast-paced, this life on the riverside. White and blue, diamonds, a snowman sky. It's Saskatoon. It's Saskatoon. It's Saskatoon. It's Saskatoon. It's Saskatoon. I once counted mustaches across Russia, and even used Billy Joel lyrics as a guidebook to New York's Long Island. Don't ever do that. So I kind of learned to play with travel the way that we played with indie rock or even football. And much of it by simply embracing the secondary. Here's Matt on how the CFL changed him. And, and then after the fact, I realized all this stuff that we were doing, like that you would be so interested in Canadian football, just fascinated by it and and traveling and and uh wanting to tell other people about it and write songs about it and there was no question for me that it was absolutely true that the nfl was utterly uninteresting and the reason the nfl was so uninteresting was because it was so professional it was so good there, there's something magical about going to see something that's obviously not great by the world standard 
and then to confer your own intimate personal greatness on it, it's a magical feeling. And, um, and that for me is what I, has directed my way of thinking about art. And, and, and when you talk about travel, that's, it's a similar thing that I think, you know, goes on. In the years following this 1991 to 94 CFL corridor, Matt got a PhD in art history, became an art professor at Chicago University, wrote books on art, and started a performance art collective that is, like our band, kind of hard to explain. But the seed started somewhere between that Air Canada call and writing songs about Garney Henley. As an American male growing up in the time period of like the 80s and the 90s, uh, kind of from the South. Uh, sports are, are obviously the principal mechanism for instilling a sense of your masculinity. And football's the most macho and most aggressive of all of them. And so you go to this place up North and people are playing football, but it's not right. It's clearly just weird football in some ways. It starts making your brain think in a different way about um, about uh, who you are and what you're doing. You're going to some outlying Canadian city that mm-hmm. you know to hang out, and it and it and it felt really good to do that. Uh, yeah. It still feels good to me today. I mean, I can't say the word tie cat without being happy about it. Now, the Thai Cat home of Hamilton happens to have my favorite Canadian attraction of all, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and you should go. Now, it's moved since I last visited, but in front of it, you still pass the same monument that I saw in 1993. It's an awkward sculpture with two gangly football players interlocked in play, and it's made by a local Swiss immigrant steelworker in 1972. One figure of the monument stands back to you, reaching above to a steel football that just meets his fingertips. The other player is sprawling out midair, parallel to the ground, arms outstretched to stop this receiver. Now, this guy isn't looking at the ball or the receiver. He's looking right at you, the viewer. And this is the protagonist of this piece of art, the defender. And the name of this art tells you that he fails. It's called touchdown. The defender does not stop this play. And I love this because glory comes in losing too. And I've said ever since I went to Canada to watch football in the 1990s, that it's there that I first really learned how to see the world and to root sometimes for those underdogs who lose, which to be honest, is pretty un-American of me. By the way, the Ticats lost every single game I attended. And that's our show. Thank you, Robert Reed, for sharing your CFL Odyssey. And to your band, TW and 87, for virtually all the music in this episode. And as always, a big thank you to our sponsor, 
Destination Canada. Check out our show page at NorthAmericanaPodcast.com for more info on planning your own CFL road trip. Of course, Robert gets the last word here. I think people should go to a Canadian football game. I think more Americans, I hope that Americans will hear this and go, hmm, maybe I should check that out. Thank you.